This is a very fast-moving, constantly changing situation. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. I'm Dan Diamond. And on today's episode, a closer look at the Wuhan virus. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. And its 11 million residents are living in semi-lockdown. In mid-December, reports of a mystery virus began to emerge in China. And as the virus quickly spread, as the number of confirmed infections exploded from dozens to thousands, as health workers treating the patients also got sick, scientists grew increasingly worried for two reasons. One, because the virus shares characteristics with viruses that led to earlier outbreaks known as SARS and MERS, which collectively killed more than 1,600 people and infected thousands more. And two, because this is a brand new virus. Researchers are still trying to understand where it came from and, crucially, how it even spreads. Last week, the Wuhan virus arrived in America. So far, only five Americans have been confirmed to have the virus, but it is spreading at a faster rate than previous outbreaks. China has put multiple cities on lockdown. In the United States, officials are now screening travelers at 20 airports. The airport screenings are working effectively, but remember, they're not perfect. But officials like HHS Secretary Alex Azar and the nation's top infectious disease experts have stressed that the risk to Americans is relatively low. Americans should know that this is a potentially very serious public health threat. But at this point, Americans should not worry for their own safety. Azar on Tuesday detailed to reporters all of the ways that the health department is working to fight the new Wuhan virus outbreak. You identify cases, isolate people, diagnose them, and treat them. Then you track down all of the contacts of the infected person, and you do the same with those people and the same with contacts of contacts if necessary. From scientists seeking better ways to diagnose and stop the virus to deploying its emergency response team to help coordinate the strategy. As of the time we're recording this, on January 28th, there have been more than 4,500 cases of the virus in 17 countries. More than 100 deaths internationally have been linked to the Wuhan virus outbreak, and more than 100 Americans are being closely watched by doctors for symptoms. And the numbers are going up every day. Chris Meekins is here to help us get into the details. I'll work to avoid my acronyms. He served as a top official helping lead the health department's emergency response team before leaving HHS last year. He's now at Raymond James. How worried are you? I think there's people are right to be concerned when there's any type of a new virus, especially one that um, there are still questions about what we know. Right, We have a lot of unanswered questions because we just don't know the science. With that being said, when I look at the global health concerns that exist, the fact that 8,200 people are already dead this flu season in the United States alone, the fact that 250,000 people are hospitalized every year in the United States from pneumonia and 50,000 people die from pneumonia every year, when I put it in perspective, I'm not heavily concerned. This is a much bigger issue in China than it is in the United States, though I do anticipate us getting a few more cases here. How worried would you be to take a flight right now? 
well, I am going to be flying in the not-too-distant future over the next few weeks. I'm not worried uh, whatsoever. I think people that do not need to go to China should avoid that. I thought the State Department and CDC's travel advisories were wise. And I think that unless you really have to go, you should avoid those parts of the world, at least for the next few weeks to a month. You talked about the other public health problems that afflict many more people and yet we ignore. Why do you think there's so much more focus on this new virus and not all the deaths that exist from the flu already? I think it's the unknown. I think we saw heavily heavy concerns with Ebola. I think we saw heavy concerns with Zika. Anytime there's a new type of a virus, it always gets people worried, and especially when it's from a foreign part of the world, from China. We're not talking about a new virus popping its head up from Illinois, right? We're talking about it coming from a name that people struggle to pronounce in the U.S. and have no idea, largely speaking, where it is. So it's that uncertainty that I think exists, which makes sense to a certain degree. But that's why it's so important for public health officials like uh, the secretary of HHS, the FDA commissioners, the CDC directors, Dr. Fauci from NIH, to really get out there and educate the public on what the real health impact is. You think if it was called the Chicago virus and not the Wuhan, virus, people would be less concerned? Or wouldn't they be more concerned because it's right next door? Uh, I thought it's incredibly fascinating that when you go back and look at the big Spanish flu from the early 1900s, that that really originated in the heartland of the U.S. I believe in Kansas. In in Kansas, not in... uh, uh, It wasn't Spanish in nature. So there's a reason these things have names. We were able to pin it on the Spanish. And they've, they've carried that with them now for a century. Last time you were here about a year ago, we talked about the threats that kept you up at night when you worked at Ikshikshas, an emergency response. Was this sort of threat one of them? You're always going to see new emerging infectious diseases. I think at this point, as we're looking at whether the virus continues to mutate, but right now what we see is about a 3% fatality rate. Um, 3% fatality rate. So of every 100 people who are infected, 3% die. Exactly. Uh, as far as we know. As far point. as we know at this point. And the reproduction rate means that basically for every person that gets it, you usually see two to three more people get it, which is similar to what you see with general influenzas. This is not something that I would be heavily concerned about. I worry about pandemic influenzas. I worry about uh, biological and chemical attacks. I worry about cybersecurity issues. Uh, this is something that is noteworthy. Because it's impacting right now, uh, China anticipates a handful of thousand people. I think it's significantly more than that in China. But you haven't seen a huge impact in the U.S. When you talk about the number of people infected in China, there's there's a point that has come up a number of times. Secretary Azar brought this up at his press conference too. The idea of the denominator. We need to understand the denominator when there is an outbreak. Can you explain why that is so important, Chris, and what we know about the denominator versus what we might not know? I think from my perspective, and the reason they want to know is it really tells you how quickly this disease spreads. It tells you um, information about what the fatality rates are. And so, you know, if you get it, how problematic is that from a global perspective? So to make educated decisions about restricting travel, to make educated decisions about whether people should go to work, to make educated decisions about whether you need to do forced quarantine or allow people to self-isolate. You really need to know the sheer number of people that are involved and the time frame in which they were infected. 
What we saw from SARS, for example, uh, the first case in SARS, which is a similar type coronavirus back in 2002 and 2003 that originated in China, we saw that the first cases started to be reported in November. Then the U.S. finally started hearing about it globally in January. But the World Health Organization didn't make a determination that this was a problem until March. The CDC didn't issue travel advisories till March 29th. And then they were able to withdraw the travel advisories July 3rd. But the point I'm making is that whole virus infected fewer people total, according to official government numbers in China, than this virus is infected. In two months, that virus had a similar number in six. That could be an area of concern. To put that another way, this new virus, in terms of how contagious it is, or infectious, and the terms mean somewhat different things, this new virus appears to be more virulent than some of the earlier outbreaks that came out of China. Based on official government data from China, and I put that caveat in there because China is notoriously bad about sharing real data and about transparency with regard to the number of people that get infected from anything. And if people in China are trying to listen to this podcast, this section will get blacked out and beeped out, I fully anticipate, as happened the other day when I was doing a television interview. So, so wait, what, you, you were doing a television interview and it got blacked out in China? Yes. Uh, what, were you, what were you talking about? This exact issue, which is the fact that China notoriously underreports the number of people that are infected. And you cannot trust initial data from China because of how poor they have done historically. Now, Were you on China State TV? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get into the exact – it was not on China State TV, but it was a business network that uh, broadcasts in China as well, which is the first time that's happened to me and I thought it was fascinating. But more importantly, I think part of the concern you have is you don't really know what China is telling us to be 100 percent accurate. Second – They've made dramatic improvements in disease surveillance since that time. So they're much better from a public health perspective in the last 15 years than they were then. But there are still concerns today about whether China is providing the United States with all the information they should be. For example, there's a concern that China is claiming that the disease can spread when someone doesn't have any symptoms, when they're asymptomatic. The Centers for Disease Control in the United States at this point is not able to confirm that because they don't have all the scientific data that China supposedly has. Now, I believe it can be spread while asymptomatic because China doesn't have a reason to mislead the public about that. In fact, they have a reason to try to claim it can't be. But they really need to share that data with the United States. So to underline this point, much of the world's response to this new virus depends on China sharing data and information, letting other health officials into the country to help fight the outbreak. Yes or no, has China been a responsible partner in your eyes? China has been a better partner than they have been historically. However, they have not met the same standard we would expect some of our European partners to meet if an infectious disease originated in those areas. So no, they haven't been fully responsible? They've not met the standards we need globally. There was a tweet from President Donald Trump about a week ago, January 24th. He wrote, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. 
In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. Was the president who's been quick to beat up on China in the past for trade rules and other policies too quick to give China credit on public health? I think you have to understand the political landscape. The United States and the global community relies on China to provide this information. And you have two choices. You can either criticize China or you can try to be nice to China. And I believe that the United States government is taking the approach of trying to praise what they believe has been positive progress from China compared to what has occurred historically in hopes that China will continue to work in a productive way instead of completely shutting it down. The president has repeatedly proposed cuts to America's public health system, billions of dollars in cuts to CDC, NIH. Now, those cuts were stopped by Congress, but the administration has wound down some internal efforts to either work with global partners, also antagonize global partners in various diplomatic ways. Has this administration, which used to work for, gutted essential functions that we need to respond to a virus like this one? I believe that... When you look at the actual results, which has been Congress has made a decision with Republican control of Congress and split control of Congress to put additional money into the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, and the areas I worked in in Asper because they believed these were important areas and areas of concern. I think the administration's attempts and to draw attention to these areas with the goal of really making sure all of the money is being spent wisely. So we did, when I was at Asper, we did a review of every single dollar that had been spent and was being spent to make sure that we were really focusing on the areas that were the greatest threats and that we were working in a collaborative way across the government so we weren't spending money on the same thing CDC or NIH were spending money. And we had better alignment of uh, – response capabilities so that, for example, the strategic national stockpile got moved from the CDC to ASPR so we could really maximize some of the other resources at ASPR to more effectively respond. The strategic stockpile, that's all the emergency drugs in case of a major outbreak in the United States. Yeah, the strategic national stockpile is $8 billion worth of masks, fluids, antibiotics, and a bunch of other things we're not going to talk about on here. Uh, to really We're not going to talk about them because they're top secret. I'm not going to say top secret, but we're not going to talk about them because we don't want to disclose everything we have available. What I can tell the public is they should feel very comfortable that the United States, including the U.S. Congress, have made uh, notable investments in this area. There's more money that is needed. But what I can say is we have tens of millions of masks ready to go should that be necessary. The Washington Post, Lena Sun, wrote a good article, I thought, on the strategic stockpile, and listeners can find a link to that in the show notes. Let's get back to the response from the United States and global engagement. When Donald Trump was not in politics, when he was a private citizen, and the Ebola outbreak happened during the Obama administration, Trump called to shut the borders, to stop letting people come back from West Africa where the Ebola outbreak was. He has not called for shutting down the borders in this case. Was the president wrong then? Is he wrong now? There was not a need to shut down the borders uh, during the most recent Ebola outbreak. I was in the government at the time. Uh, there was great collaboration across the government, uh, tracking patients and really trying to assist the people in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in responding to what was a major public health crisis there. 
I think if you go back and look at one of the president's previous books, he actually talked about the need for biodefense and the importance of that. So clearly there is some history of him understanding that there is an area here where we need to invest and the concerns for the public. You helped run HHS emergency response. You were a top official on the team known as ASPR, which you've referenced a few times. If you were at HHS right now, as this Wuhan virus is spreading, what would you be doing? I think the most important thing from our perspective is making sure that the National Disaster Medical System, which are doctors, nurses, paramedics, uh, EMTs, are ready, volunteers, part-time federal employees when we need to activate them, are ready in case there were to be a pandemic in the United States, which we don't think is possible. So this is like the reserve soldiers, that if the Army needs to call up the reserves, you've got these reserve healthcare support Exactly. Teams? So these people oftentimes get deployed during hurricanes. So, for example, during the hurricanes Harvey Irma Maria a few years ago uh, in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico, we deployed more than 4,000 people, 900 tons of medical supplies, and saw nearly 40,000 patients that needed the care. So the government has these items in reserve that they can call up when needed. Second thing we'd be looking at is the strategic national stockpile, making sure we were ready in case we needed to deploy those things. But more importantly, from a government perspective, we'd be helping to coordinate the departmental response because you have members at CDC that are taking the lead on disease detection and really tracking the disease in the United States. You have the National Institutes of Health that would be helping develop an early vaccine. And depending on the type of infectious disease, Asper might step in uh, to assist funding in some of those activities through the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority as it gets towards later clinical trials. We'd be working with uh, the Office of Global Affairs to make sure that if there are requests of the Chinese or others, that CDC and the people in the department are able to get access to it. And then one part of the department is if there were to be a need to evacuate Americans from that area, what we call a repatriation event, we'd be working with the administration on children and families to ensure that they have the logistical capabilities to bring individuals back from that with assistance from the Department of State, and then treat them or care for them once they return to the United States. A lot of different pieces. There are daily White House meetings that go on, coordinated by the National Security Council. Uh, you have interagency conversations that are consistently ongoing in daily briefings of the secretary, which are usually done in the secretary's operations center, which ASPR oversees. So essentially, ASPR is the nerve center coordinating all of these different responses. And you mentioned the operations center, that's the room, like, if, if you're listening to this podcast and trying to imagine the response team, the operations center, like, looks like what you would see out of a Hollywood movie. It's the different screens, like, the people sitting behind their desks at all times looking very focused on the issue at hand. Yes. I mean, full disclosure, most days there's a few people in the operations center 24-7, 365, even on holidays, tracking these things, infectious diseases around the world and communicates to the WHO if there's any disease of concern in the U.S. But when there needs to be a response, a major response, it staffs up. then right? it staffs up. So the CDC has an emergency operations center down in Atlanta, which is activated, and where they have all of their folks and coordinate directly with the operations center uh, up here in Washington. So there really is collaboration throughout the department. And that's one of the things that I've been a little more encouraged by than what we saw in previous responses is really the collaboration. CDC understands its role, has been executing, doing a great job. NIH understands its role. ASPR understands what it needs to. And I think that's partially because you have a secretary who 
was at the department previously when you had SARS, when you had the anthrax attacks. So you have someone in leadership that actually understands the public health threats, what the department can do, and what steps the department should be taking. We've talked a lot about the administration's response, but there's been some reaction on the campaign trail too. Senator Elizabeth Warren on Tuesday came out with a plan to fight infectious disease. Have, have you looked at that plan, Chris? I have. What do you make of Warren's plan to fight infections and, and what gaps is she filling that maybe currently exist? I was encouraged that any of the Democratic presidential candidates were willing to put forward a plan to talk about the need to fight infectious diseases because oftentimes it's an area that gets overlooked. So that I was encouraged by. So it's just a win that Warren is calling attention to. I think it's good that she's calling attention to it. I think that she called for more funding, which is great, but money doesn't grow on trees and she didn't say how she would pay for it. Maybe she'll come out with a plan to say how she'll pay for it like she did with Medicare for All months after people asked her the question. But from my perspective, I think that the biggest area of concern was she wants us to go backward instead of forward. She proposes moving the strategic national stockpile and said it was a mistake to move it to Asper when really it's going to save millions of dollars a year. But more importantly, that money is not just going back to the treasury. It's being reinvested in uh, critical countermeasures that we need to make America safer. And that, I think, was the big ch- one of the big the changes the Trump administration made. And I think it was a major step forward. And I think she just doesn't understand the political ramifications. Well, I have to be honest. Explain to me, I, I cover HHS, and I'm still not sure I understand all the bureaucratic ramifications of which part of the health department controls the stockpile of emergency responses. I mean, if I'm a patient, why does it matter to me if it's at CDC or HHS, they're all part of the same infrastructure. When you have a public health emergency, CDC really does detection and does monitoring. But CDC doesn't have an army of people they can necessarily send into the field to call to fix a major public health disaster. So for example, during a hurricane, we were just talking about Harvey or Maria potentially, where CDC sent a couple hundred people, Asper was able to deploy 4,000. We have those resources available, and when you're looking at needing to move uh, the amount of material we need to move for those patients, as well as potentially for the strategic national stockpile, it makes sense to have it in one place for command and control to advance the ball down the field. Besides Elizabeth Warren, have any other Democratic candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, put out plans to fight infectious disease specifically? I haven't seen them, but it may have uh, flown under the radar for me. I haven't seen either. Last question. We are talking at the end of January. Where do you think this goes, Chris? In your capacity as someone who has seen viruses spread, who has seen public health emergencies from the inside, where do you think this goes in the next two months? I think it's going to continue to be an issue in the next two months. What we saw with SARS was that the global community finally started paying attention in January, and it wasn't until July that they finally said, okay, we feel like the virus is contained. Now, global public health has improved since that time, but the virus usually calms down in the summer as temperatures get warmer, humidity increases. I believe this is going to continue to be an issue for weeks or months, and that in China in particular, you're going to see these kind of sequester or self-quarantine of 56 million. That's bigger than the size of California. That'd be like saying Californians, guess what? You can't leave the state. Just hang out here. We're not letting any flights in, any flights out. 
I think you're going to continue to see that for at least the next several weeks and probably longer, especially if the incubation period is 14 days instead of 7 to 10, as it was with SARS. So the issue is going to get way worse in China. Uh, what I tell my clients that ask me questions about uh, this disease is that people are underappreciating how bad it's going to be in China and overappreciating the impact in the U.S. So significantly worse in China. In the U.S., I think we're going to be okay, even if we do see a handful more cases pop up. And I'm sure we will be reporting on it at Politico, given the public health and political ramifications of a viral outbreak. Chris Meekins, former emergency response official at HHS, current analyst at Raymond James. Thank you so much for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for tuning in to Politico Pulse Check this week. Our producer is Annie Reese. Jenny Ament is senior producer, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. For links to stories and the HHS resources that we talked about, check the show notes. And you can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com by email with suggestions and tips. We'll be back with a new episode of Politico Pulse Check very soon.